Hebrews 11, once again, we're going to talk about faith and living by faith, these examples that we find in this chapter. Faith that defies the odds. Faith that defies the odds. You know, throughout history, there have been a number of times when the odds have been against the one who succeeded. I'm sure that most of the world didn't hold out much hope for the fledgling American colonies uh, to win a war of independence against Great Britain in the 1700s. Great Britain was one of the most uh, powerful nations on the face of the earth at that time. And yet, our forefathers fought against all the odds and won nonetheless. Risk. Odds. Someone has made the following observation about risks. To laugh is to risk appearing a fool. To weep is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out for another is to risk involvement. To expose feelings is to risk rejection. To place your dreams before the crowd is to risk ridicule. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To go forward in the face of overwhelming odds is to risk failure. And yet, it is those who take the risks and succeed that go down in the history books as heroes. I want to tell you tonight that living by faith will require risking the odds. There will be times that it will require risking the odds. So we come to Hebrews 11, verse 23, and we find here Moses' parents, his parents who taught us this important principle. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Living by faith will require risking the odds. I want you to notice the characteristics of faith uh, that risks the odds. And there's several characteristics. Before we do that, let me just kind of uh, recap where we've been since the beginning of this chapter. So the writer of Hebrews has been paging through his copy of Genesis, as it were, telling us about the great men and women of faith. He started off at the beginning of the chapter. We didn't take a look at him here, uh, but he starts off with Abel from Genesis 4. And he goes to Enoch in chapter 5. And Noah, uh, followed by Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And now he's come to the end of Genesis. So he turns the pages of his scriptures over to the next book, Exodus. And the first person of significance that we meet in that book, of course, is Moses. But before telling us about Moses' great faith, he tells us in one verse about the faith of his parents. A man and woman who had to defy, who had the faith, I should say, to defy the odds. Let's look at the characteristics of their faith, and I think we can learn some characteristics for our faith as well. The first thing I see is courage. As we look at it, it says they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So let's hold our finger in Hebrews 11 and go back to the Old Testament story so we can fill in the details. Exodus chapter 1 is where we're going to go. Exodus chapter 1. 
And the last verse of the chapter, which is verse 22, Exodus 1, 22. Here's the commandment that they were not afraid of. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. Chapter 2, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took a wife of the daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived, and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. So Pharaoh commanded that all the Israelite baby boys be thrown into the Nile River, where they would no doubt be consumed by the crocodiles uh, that were there. Now I want you to notice that it seemed that Pharaoh didn't expect the Israelites to obey his order. So he took extra precautions. He commanded all of his people to throw the baby boys into the river. It wasn't just the Egyptian police then. It was all the people. This means that any of the Egyptians uh, could, if he saw a, uh, a Hebrew child, baby, he could pick up the baby Jewish boy and throw him into the river, and the law protected him. Infanticide, protected by law. Now, in order to defy that law, then it required some special care on the part of Moses' parents, whose names were Amram and Jochebed. They were forced to hide their newborn son, and that took some courage. Now, the scriptures don't say it, but I imagine that there was a punishment for parents who refused the order or whose, whose children were found uh, and needed to be thrown into the river. Not only then maybe could they have lost their child, but possibly there was some other kind of punishment that would have gone with it. Nevertheless, they had the faith to not fear what the king had said and to defy the odds. You know, true faith always produces courage and boldness, even against the odds. What do you think the odds were for them to keep a baby hidden? amid the crying that newborns will have, uh, to keep them hidden, not just from the authorities, but to keep them hidden from any Egyptian who might pass by, maybe from another Hebrew who wanted to get in good graces with the Egyptians. But they had the faith that defied the odds. You know, today, as Christians, we are living in a hostile world. The odds are against us, and they're increasing. The odds are against us for growing a church that is committed to the Lord and his word. Uh, any of the pastors who have seen any kind of literature that they constantly mail to, to uh, men in the ministry uh, or seminars that they run, the experts out there will tell you that you've got to compromise your beliefs or your standards in order to grow a church. The odds are against us for raising godly children in an increasingly secular environment. The, the, the statistics will tell us and tell you that children are, young people are leaving churches, even good churches, in mass numbers. 
The odds are against us for keeping our marriages intact. Again, statistics say one in two marriages end in divorce. And, that, and the church is not immune from that. The odds seem to be rising against us too to maintain our religious freedoms. 2020 proved that governments, even in the free world like ours, are willing to quickly curtail the activity of churches. Let's face it, folks. This world is a hostile world. And the odds are often against us. But, but by faith, we can find the courage to do what's right in spite of all the odds. I think about those missionaries who courageously braved difficult circumstances and rugged elements and hostile people in order to take the gospel to the foreign lands. I'm reminded of, of the biography and the story of John Patton who sailed to the New Hebrides to reach, of all people, the cannibals for Christ. Or there was Brother Andrew, if you've read his story, called God's Smuggler, who smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain by stuffing them in his Volkswagen, driving across the borders with his Bibles. Or Jim Elliott, who was killed by the Aka Indians while trying to make contact with them in Ecuador in order to give them the gospel. So where'd they get the courage to risk the odds? Faith. Faith. So the first characteristic, then, that we see of a, a courage that's willing to risk the odds, uh, a faith that's willing to risk the odds is courage. The second characteristic, though, I want you to notice is caution. Now, these go hand in hand. They're not opposites of each other. The Bible says that they hid their son. So faith is courageous, but it is not reckless. Moses' parents did not place him out on the stoop in a basket, believing that he'd be okay out there. No, no, no. They hid him, believing that God would protect him. See, we serve a realistic God. Many times he may ask us to dare the impossible or to brave the dangerous, but he never asks us to throw all caution to the wind. Our, our God is a common sense God. He's the creator of common sense, after all. He expects us to use it. And while Moses' parents courageously protected their son, they also used some good common sense to keep him hidden. You may say, well, how's that faith? <laughs> because they knew they could only do so much to hide an infant. You know? You can't explain to a baby that he can only cry at certain times. If you've ever had one, you know that that's the case, right? <laughs> and thus, they used all the caution they could to hide Moses, but you see, they trusted God to keep him hidden. And the two go hand in hand. Again, as you study the great heroes of the faith, you always find that they were brave. Many of them went to their deaths because of their faith. But they were not reckless. Many of them used all means possible to preserve their lives and the lives of their families. 
By faith, some succeeded. By faith, others did not. I tell you again, another incident from Martin Luther. He's one of my favorites uh, from um, history. A man who was willing to defy the odds. He's summoned by the Roman church to, to go to Worms where he was going to be tried for what they said was heresy. And many of his friends tried to prevent him from going. They, they feared that his end would be the same as so many others. That was to be burned at the stake. But Luther believed God. He wasn't afraid to go and to defend his faith and his doctrine, but he also had some good common sense. He said, I'm ready to go to Worms, provided I have a safe conduct and learned, pious, and impartial judges. A safe conduct he had. Pious and impartial judges he did not. But God honored his faith and spared his life. The third characteristic that I see uh, from Moses' parents is perseverance. It says that they hid their son three months. Three months. It took perseverance to do that. Now, for those of you who have had children and can remember when uh, they were first born in that first three months, you probably thought that first three months went fast. I mean, after all, they changed so much in that first three months as it goes on. If you were on maternity leave and you were fortunate enough to have a three-month maternity leave, uh, you probably thought it went fast, too fast, before you had to go back to work. But if you're trying to keep your newborn hidden and quiet and alive for three months, it must have been the longest three months that Amram and Jochebed had ever experienced. Again, if you've had children, you know that babies cry at any time, morning, noon, or night. They have to be fed. Back then, there were no such thing as bottles, right? His mother would have had to feed him in such a way that, that he would not be seen, or maybe that she would not be seen. I imagine his father had to cover up for his wife in some way, why she couldn't uh, uh, come and take care of this or that at a given time. And yet, because of their faith in God, they persevered in doing what's right. Perseverance against the odds. My friends, when the odds are against you, it's going to take perseverance. And maybe a lot of it. It takes persevering faith to teach Sunday school class year after year and see little fruit. My hat is off to those Sunday school teachers who do it year after year, many times getting very little thanks or appreciation. When you're in first and second grade, you don't think to thank your Sunday school teacher. But I remember my first grade Sunday school teacher and my second grade Sunday school teacher. And I'm thankful today for them. But I don't know that I ever told them. 
How do they keep doing it year after year? Perseverance. And that comes from faith. It takes persevering faith to keep praying for your lost loved ones. And some of you have been praying for a long time. It takes persevering faith to remain faithful in church, in personal Bible reading, in prayer, when the demands of life are increasing around you and pulling you away. It takes persevering faith to keep on rejoicing even when your health trials linger on indefinitely. It takes persevering faith to bring up your children in God's way while the world out there, from every angle it can try, will try to pull them away from God. But faith, faith perseveres against the odds. The fourth characteristic that I want you to note about a faith that risks the odds is diligence. The scripture says in Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. It's interesting to me that the writer of Hebrews says here, by faith Moses. It wasn't Moses that did anything at this point. It was his parents that did it. But he doesn't mention the names of his parents. In fact, we don't even learn the names of his parents in chapter 2 of Exodus. It's not until we get to chapter 6 in Exodus that we actually find their names. So they're not even named for us in Hebrews 11, but the scripture says, by faith, Moses. And I believe he did that for a reason. I believe that he wanted to get to Moses and discuss Moses' great faith, which he's going to do in the next few verses. And we'll talk about that next week. But before he talks about Moses' faith, he wanted to talk about where Moses learned it. And that was from his parents. So he starts with his parents, but instead of naming them, he ties Moses into it there at that point. And I think then that the important lesson that we need to learn is that Moses' parents were people of faith, and they diligently passed that faith on to their son. If you're still in Exodus, look back at chapter 2, verse 3. And when she could no longer hide him, she took him for an an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. And her sister stood afar off, that would have been Miriam, to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister, this is Miriam, to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him to, unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
And she called his name Moses, for she said, because I drew him out of the water. So when they realized it was impossible for them to keep Moses hidden any longer, they decided on another plan for, to preserve their son. They placed him in a basket in the river near where the princess would be bathing. Now the bathing, I think that's referred to here, is a religious bathing. Not in the river, but at the river. She comes down to the river. Now it's a daring plan, really, when you stop and think about it. But it proved to be successful. And of course, as you know, God honors their faith, and Miriam says, do you want a nurse? Sure, I'll take a nurse. And she runs off to get her mother to come and nurse the child. And on top of that, she gets paid to do it too. So, I mean, God really had blessed uh, the faith here. But the Bible says that the child grew in verse 10. We're not told how long uh, they, that Moses was with his parents before he went to be with the princess and live in the royal palace at least until the child was weaned, which was probably at least five at that time, maybe even longer. But what do you think that his parents did with the time they had with their son? I believe they taught him as much as they could about God and their heritage and instructed him in who he was and that God had a purpose for him, and that's why he spared his life. You see, with diligence, they're passing their faith on to their son. They didn't even have 18 years, but they were going to pass on what they could in the time that they had. I remember years ago seeing the animated movie uh, Prince of Egypt that was put out by DreamWorks. Um, the, the, the film had so many mistakes in it, it was pathetic <laughs> and very disturbing. One of the most disturbing uh, scenes in the whole thing was when um, Moses didn't know who he was, and he stumbles upon his heritage by accident, uh, if I remember the storyline correctly. I don't think that's the way it was at all. I think that's completely in error. Moses knew who he was. He knew that he was a Hebrew who had been raised by uh, Hebrew parents and was brought up to know God. So they defied the odds. They defied the odds by teaching their son who would eventually be raised in the royal palace and educated in the Egyptian schools. But they taught him so that Moses would maintain his faith in the true God. Now, parents, if you still got kids at home, think about that. Think about that. The odds were far against them than they are against you, who still have your kids at home in a good church. The faith to defy the odds. What's the basis for this kind of a faith? Well, one thing you're going to notice as you look at all these different uh, examples of faith going through Hebrews 11 is there's a lot of similarities because the Bible tells us exactly where the basis of our faith is supposed to be. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
the basis of our faith, the basis for their faith, the basis of faith for us as believers is very simply the word of God. What did they have? Let's talk about Amram and Jochebed. What did they have? Well, they had a command of God's word. They had a command. It says here, they were not afraid of the king's commandment. It's important that we understand they were not afraid of the king's commandment because they feared God's commandment. You see, here's God's command. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we find part of that. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. They knew that it was wrong for them to murder their newborn baby. And therefore, in faith, they disobeyed Pharaoh's orders. I'm reminded of what the apostles said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter says, uh, and the other apostles to the, the Jewish leaders, we ought to obey God rather than men. So yes, we're expected to obey the government. The Bible teaches us that. But God has established government to operate within his guidelines, within his morality as well. And when the government orders us to do something that's in violation of the direct command of Scripture, then we must disobey in faith. Because in doing so, you see, we are obeying God in faith. This has been the faith of all those who have risked the odds. Such was the faith of the reformers. Such was the faith of those who, who printed Bibles contrary to the orders of governments and established churches. Such was the faith of many who lived, and even some who still live, under communist regimes, or those in many countries today living under Islamic governments. They're willing to obey God rather than men. What's more important to you? Obeying God or saving your life? You see, faith chooses God's commands even if it is costly, even if it is risky. There will always come a point, folks, in which obedience to God will look risky. Do we understand that? It might be attending church when the government imposes another lockdown. It might be sharing your faith with a friend. It seems risky that you might lose your friendship. It might be forgiving someone who has hurt you. It might be revamping the priorities of your family. That, that seems risky. Are you willing to take the risk to obey God? You see, folks, whatever it is, you will be tempted to say or to think, I can't afford the risk. And that's when you'll need faith to obey. But I want you to notice they had something else. Not just a command. They had hope. Hope from God's word. The scripture says uh, in Hebrews 11, you can turn back there. It says that they hid him three months 
because they saw he was a proper child. Now that, only, that almost makes it sound like maternal affection was the chief motivator for Jochebed's uh, preservation of Moses. But that's not the case because the author said that it was an act of faith. Okay, he's already told us it was by faith that they did this. Now on the other hand, some commentators uh, attempt to say that Amram and Jochebed had a special revelation from God that Moses was going to be the deliverer. I suppose that's possible, but there's no hint of it in Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. The word proper uh, is uh, an interesting word. The word appears twice in the New Testament, both times about Moses. <laughs> it describes an attractive beauty that was uncommonly, uncommonly striking. So in other words, Moses was not just a typical cute baby. He was an especially beautiful baby. And evidently, his physical beauty led his parents to believe that, that God intended him for greater purposes. It gave them hope. In Acts chapter 7, verse 20, when Stephen is uh, addressing the Sanhedrin, he mentions this about Moses. It says, In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months exceeding fair. The word fair is the same word that's translated here, proper. And it adds the word exceeding, or literally, fair unto God. So they saw him as a beautiful child, not only in their eyes, but in God's eyes. And maybe that's the reason they attempted their daring plan. You know, you think about that? They saw how beautiful he was, and they said, we can risk this. We can put him down in the reeds so that when the princess comes and they, she opens that basket up, she'll see how beautiful this baby is and she won't want to throw him to the crocodiles. But more importantly, they believed that God might choose Moses to be the deliverer. You see, they had more to go on than simply the fact that Moses was born and he was a beautiful child. They had hope that was rooted in the promises of God, and that's where their faith had rested. In Genesis chapter 46, verses 3 and 4, God says to Jacob, this is when Jacob's on his way to Egypt to see Joseph, whom he hasn't seen in years, and to move his whole family down there because of a famine. And God says to him, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and listen, and I will sh also surely bring thee up again. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and listen, and God will surely visit you and bring you up out of the land, unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So there's, there's Joseph believing the promises, telling the Israelites, and they would recount that again and again and again. Joseph said God would visit us. And even more than that, they had the word of God to Abraham in chapter 15, verse 13, where God says, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. They could start counting 
and they could tell that the 400 years was almost up. And that means that God should be sending a deliverer soon. And here's this beautiful child, and they probably prayed that Moses would be the deliverer. And certainly the Holy Spirit led them to preserve him for that purpose, even if they didn't fully understand all that God had uh, in mind at that time. Stephen also tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, referring to Moses, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. He's referring to the incident when Moses, it says, went out to visit his brethren. He's 40 years old, and he finds two Hebrews, uh, no, he finds a, a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he rises up and he kills the Egyptian and he buries him in the sand. And what Stephen is saying is that Moses thought that they would understand that he was the deliverer and that they would want to follow him and do what, he's, what he um, said. But they didn't understand because he goes out the next day and he finds two Hebrews fighting and he tries to stop them and they say, what are you going to do? Kill us like he did the Egyptian? And then Moses gets scared and he runs off into the wilderness. But it does seem that Moses had an idea that he was destined to be the deliverer of the Israelites, even though he went about it the wrong way at the beginning. Where do you think he got the idea? I think it came from his parents, that they instilled in him the hope that God was going to save his people. And then God began to move on Moses' heart that he might be the one who could deliver them. But here as we look at Amram and Jochebed, we find that in faith, in faith, they clung to the promises of God even when the odds were against them. And this is where they gleaned the hope in a near hopeless situation. And my friends, when the odds are against you, you will find the basis for your faith and your hope in God's promises. You've got to cling to them. Here's a few. Matthew 6, 33 and 34. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, that's the things that you need for this life, shall be added unto you. Verse 34 goes on to say, Therefore, take no thought for tomorrow. In other words, don't worry. You don't need to worry about tomorrow because if you are seeking God first and his kingdom and his righteousness, the Lord's going to take care of the needs that are going to be in tomorrow. Are you clinging to the promise? Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Those are the promises of prayer. Do you cling to those promises? Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking.
1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in what? The work of the Lord. And here's the promise. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And yet I know that the devil... I imagine he does it to you because he does it to me all the time. Will come along and tell you that everything you're doing for the Lord is in vain. It's not working. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody wants to hear. You've got to cling to the promise. It is not in vain. It is not in vain in the Lord. And here's one last one for you. We could talk about so many promises, but here's the one last one. From the very last verse of the Bible, the words of Jesus, surely I come quickly. Soon. Soon? That was 2,000 years ago. Yes, soon. In God's time, it's all soon. He's coming. He's coming soon. You've got to believe it, folks. You've got to hold on to it in those days when it's difficult, in those days when the world is pulling your heart away and you don't want to keep living for God. You've got to hold on to it when, when you look at the, the news and you go, this world has gone crazy. It's gone mad. And when you get discouraged and depressed that America is going the wrong way, Jesus says, I come quickly. He tells the church, one of the churches in Revelation, hold fast to what you have, for I am coming. Cling to the promises of God, even when the odds are against you. Folks, they cannot fail. They cannot fail. Living by faith will require risking the odds. Faith is not daunted by the odds, folks. It believes God's commands. It trusts his promises. It goes forward with courage, yes, with caution, but with perseverance and with diligence, too. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary who went to China by faith and founded uh, the China Inland Mission, believed that faith and risk went hand in hand. He said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. <laughs> unless there's an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. There will be an element of risk. And we do need faith. That's a good point. It's not foolhardy risk, though, folks. It is rather a faith willing to defy the odds by obeying God's commands, clinging to his promises. What about you? Are you willing to believe against the odds, against what everybody else says, maybe even your own family? 
Are you willing to believe and obey? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the reminder of Scripture that we need a faith that is willing to defy the odds, to persevere in obedience, and to do what's right. Lord, I don't know all the circumstances of everyone who's in this room. I look across this room and I know that several of them still have children at home. And they're dealing with the odds. Because this world is against their children when they want to raise their children for God. Give them faith, Lord, to defy those odds and to do what's right. I see couples here, Father, that some have probably co-workers that don't care about marriage, would counsel wrongly against it. But you say, Father, that you can give us the strength to obey and to do what is right and to make our marriages the loving homes that they ought to be according to your commandments. I thank you for this church that is willing to defy the odds of a compromised movement in our country that would attempt to water down the word of God and the preaching of the word and the standards of believers and righteous living to bring in a bigger crowd. Help us, Father, as a, as a church, as a congregation, to hold fast to what is right, what is biblical, no matter what the others tell us. Give us the courage to continue to believe. We thank you, Father, for these examples that we have in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you'll seal them in our hearts and help us, Father, to follow in their footsteps of obedient faith. We'll give you the praise for it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Family, Have a Bible today. Please open to Revelation chapter 4 with me. Revelation chapter 4 this morning. We continue our third and final message on experiencing God through Worship. We can experience uh, intimacy, relationship with the Lord in our time of worship. True worship is it's giving to God, not getting. It's giving, not getting. So what is true worship? You see in your notes, worship, worship is any true expression of exalting God and His glory for who He is and what He has done. Already this morning, 
our time of prayer, our time of giving, our time of singing. It's all been worship to God. And now opening the word, reading it, explaining it, that is worship as well. If you are a Christian, then Revelation chapter 4 is a prophecy about your future. That's kind of cool. Uh, God tells us something that's going to happen to us. So Revelation 4 is a prophecy about our future. The scene, well, the scene is in heaven after the rapture. And even though there is a lot happening in chapter 4, I want you to especially notice the 24 elders. So who are the 24 elders? And they're the church. They represent the church. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, we know that for several reasons. First of all, it's because they're wearing crowns. Now, there are two different Greek words in the New Testament for crown. Diadem, uh, that is the crown of a ruler. That's not the crown here. It's the crown Stephanos, Stephen, Stephanos. The victor's crown, the crown of a victor. And that crown is promised to the Christians, both in Revelation chapter 2, 10, also in chapter 3. So since they've been crowned, they've been rewarded. Well, judgment has not yet come to the Jewish people of Israel. Judgment has not yet come to the angels. That's future. So the only group in heaven eligible to be rewarded at this time would be the church. They also sing a song of redemption in chapter 5, verse 9. Well, people, uh, New Testament saints, we have been redeemed. Uh, elders never appear in Old Testament scenes in heaven. And then lastly, they're wearing white robes, and that is promised to the Christians in chapter 3, verse 5. 24 elders, it's the church. 24 elders represents you and me. So let's please stand together. I'm going to read a prophecy about your future if you are a Christian. Revelation chapter 4, and we pick it up in verse 1. After this, I, I, John, the Apostle John, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. These are, these are a description of angels, cherubim. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. 
And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat in the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. What a scene. It's your future. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for our time to gather together as believers on the Lord's Day to exalt Jesus Christ. I pray that if there be one that is here today that's not saved, may the Spirit of God convict and draw and bring them to Yourself in salvation. Lord, I pray for each Christian. You'd put in our hearts what we were created to do is to love and to worship and to serve You with all of our hearts. I pray you'd help us to set aside now the cares of this world and our day and week and to focus upon you and the message you have for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Two young brothers, uh, Jimmy and Johnny, were always getting into trouble. I mean, if there was trouble in the neighborhood, it was always these two young boys. So at their wit's end, the parents finally called the local priest and asked if he would speak to them. After all this, priest had experience in dealing with young, delinquent boys. He said, sure, bring them over to the church. The mom walked the boys through this large cathedral. I mean, it was decorated with all kinds of statues, the statues of the saints, Well, Jimmy sat outside. Uh, Johnny went in first to the office. Sitting across a huge desk, the priest just stared at the boy for about five minutes. Didn't say a word. And then finally, he pointed his finger at the boy and he asked, Young man, where is God? The boy's eyes got wide, and he looked under the desk, and he looked around, and and he didn't say anything at all. And the priest repeated a little louder, Young man, where's God? And again, the boy looked around and, and, and said nothing. Well, finally, finally the priest leaned across the desk, pointed his finger just an inch away from his nose, and he almost shouted, Young man, Where is God? Well, the boy panicked. He ran out of the office. He grabbed his little brother by the hand and said, Jimmy, Jimmy, run. We're in big trouble. They can't find God, and they think we took him. (laughs) Let me ask you today, when when you come to church, do you find God? When you come to church, Are you seeking God? Are you looking for God to work in your life? I hope so. There in your notes, you see see the quote, everybody worships. Everybody worships something. The only choice we get is who we worship. You get to choose who you worship. Now, there are three aspects of worship today I'd like to look at, private worship, public worship, and then heavenly worship. And I'd like to be able to give you a a picture to keep in your mind as we consider 
uh, worship. First of all is our private worship. Our private worship occurs when we meet with God personally, one-on-one. And that's what happened. Jesus met the woman of the well, just the two of them, one-on-one. He told her that if, that if she accepted him as her Savior, she could worship God. Now, everyone everywhere is to worship the God who made them, the God who gave them life. It is the ultimate insult to the Creator to ignore God, uh, to deny God. The answer for the problems in our country, it's not the government. The answer for our problems is Jesus Christ. And every time you and I, or every time as a church, we help people get saved, you just helped light another spiritual candle in America to help dispel the darkness of hate and pride and crime and gun violence and prejudice and sin. And so, by speaking kindly to her, Jesus showed the woman of the well God's love. But he also confronted her false worship, didn't he? Because you have to have love and truth. In John 4, 22, he said, Ye worship, ye know not what? We know who we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus pointed out her sin. It was a bitter pill for her to swallow. But then came God's amazing grace. Then came God's amazing forgiveness. His overwhelming joy filled her heart. Now, there are two levels of private worship. Uh, first of all, is our worship is to be all day, every day. All day, every day, 24-7. Everything that a Christian does is to honor God. In fact, God said it this way in a very mundane way. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, so we are to give glory to God by how we live everywhere all the time. But then notice also, our worship is to be a special daily event. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Daniel. Daniel had a daily appointment time to meet with God. You know, even when the king was tricked to signing a law forbidding prayer to another God, Daniel kept his appointment to meet with God and pray with God. In fact, he did it in front of an open window that faced Jerusalem. Now, when the law was passed that would have threatened his life, Daniel could have said, you know, I think I'll, I'll, shut, I'll close the shutters today. Daniel said, I think I, I could go back to another room in, in my house because he is a great ruler, advisor to the king. I think I'll go over there where the, where the enemies won't see me. Not Daniel. Daniel was not ashamed of his worship. Daniel is public in his worship. And I think there are some things that, that we can learn from Daniel in this private worship. First of all, worshiping God supersedes government decrees. Worshiping God supersedes government decrees. Do you think that applies to us today? <laughs> oh, man, oh, man. Uh, yes, thank, thank God here in Pennsylvania, uh, we didn't have what some other governors did to, in other states where they, where they fined churches, where they, where they arrested pastors, where they, where they shut churches down. But I want you to know that when we worship God, it supersedes whatever the government decree is. Secondly, worshiping God is more important than life. More important than life. Daniel is risking his welfare. Daniel is risking his life to continue to worship God. 
Thirdly, worshiping God focuses on God, not fighting God's enemies. Some have gotten uh, misconstrued mis, uh, and, and they're focused this last year, haven't they? They think our focus is to fight the enemy of God. No, no, no. Our focus is to worship God. That's the focus. We learned this from Daniel. So my appointment with God, it's the most important thing I can do every day. It's the most important thing I can do on Sunday. Taking time to focus on the Lord, to have an intimate time of conversation and fellowship with Him. He talks to me when I read his word. I talk to him when I pray. Now, this is something that I know many of you do. Uh, If you used to do this regularly, but now you just kind of hit and miss with your time with God, may I encourage you today to begin again and experience God with the daily God and I time. That's your personal private worship secondly notice our public worship now the image here i'd like you to see is the the parable that jesus told in luke 18 two men two men came to the temple came publicly they came to pray they came to worship one's a pharisee one's a publican you know the story he's a tax collector they both came to the temple they both prayed One came with great pride, one came with humility. Do you remember how he beat his breast and he said, Oh God, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only one man went home justified before God. That was the publican, the tax collector. You know what Jesus teaches here? Jesus teaches here that salvation is instantaneously received in this act of faith and repentance. He went down justified. It wasn't a process. It wasn't a series of 10 classes with the rabbi. It was in a moment he received his justification by faith. So no matter what you passed, God's grace is greater. He went down justified. So how how does worshiping God impact your life? Why spend three Sundays talking about our worship to God? Well, like the publican, Worship brings you into a right relationship with God. In a world that's filled with sin, a world filled with conflict and worry, the most significant thing you can do today is to take some time to worship God. And after this time of worship, after you connect with God, what happens is your heart gets filled with gratitude. Your heart gets filled with joy. Your heart gets filled with peace no matter what's happening in the world, no matter what's happening in your life. So every week we gather with like-minded Christians to worship together in God's New Testament temple, which is the church. So what do you expect public worship to be like? What do you expect to get when you come to church? Do you expect it to be, well, intellectually challenging? Do you expect it to be entertaining? Do you expect it to be an emotional experience? And if this does not happen, you may think, well, well, worship hasn't taken place didn't worship God today, had none of those things. Let's understand this morning that worship is not about the intellect. Worship is not about entertainment. Worship is not about emotion. It's about you and me giving, giving honor, giving praise to God. Uh, You're not the audience. God's the audience or the participants in this worship. Giving yourself to God is a living sacrifice to the God who created us. 
So real quick, what about the when, where, and why of public worship? The when. When they met, the early church met on Sunday for worship. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered. Do you know that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church? There's a famine and persecution back in Jerusalem, and he says, you all need to take up an offering. Let's help the Jewish Christians. Now, when you gather together, take the love offering for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Well, what day is that? First day of the week. So the when is Sunday. I notice also the where, the gathering of the local church, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what's a local church? A local church is an organized group of baptized believers who abandon themselves together for the purpose fulfilling the Great Commission, giving glory to God. A church has pastors and deacons. It has officers. A church has an appointed time to meet. A church administers the two ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. It's not just a loose gathering of Christians studying their Bible at a coffee shop when it's convenient. It's not a church. That's just some Christians studying their Bible at a coffee shop. It's not a church. Oh, but I, I believe in a home church. You know, dad's the pastor and mom's the assistant or the deacon and the kids of the congregation. You're fooling yourself. It's not a church. It's not what a church is. A church is where we gather together publicly on Sunday to fulfill God's plan being a lighthouse in our generation. And then we have, we have the why. Why do we worship together on Sunday? It's celebration. We're celebrating the most important event in human history. Jesus Christ came back to life on a Sunday. We're celebrating. He lives. He lives. He said, because I live, ye shall live also. So it's a celebration. Notice in your notes, how do we worship together? Well, God is honored. He's honored when we all share in expressing His glory, His majesty. How do we do that together? Well, we sing. We sing to Him. We did that. We pray to Him. We read His Word. We explain it. We grow in our faith. We serve God. We serve others. We give offerings. We obey His command to be baptized. We share the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that tonight. When was the last time you observed the Lord's table? You don't want to miss it. We'll be doing it tonight at, at 5 o'clock. You say, oh, but pastor, there's a playoff game tonight. Record it. Watch it later. And isn't it this afternoon, playoff game? All right, all right. Uh, oh, but pastor, little Johnny goes to bed at 6.30. Well, we moved the service to 5 p.m. Come on out. You have plenty of time to get little Johnny to bed on time. We should never grow weary of seeing people get baptized. We should never grow weary of observing the Lord's Supper. Amen? I mean, it's exciting stuff to be able to see believers get baptized publicly, proclaiming their faith in Christ. Man, that's something we should be excited about. Some churches can go a whole year and see one person get baptized. And we're seeing dozens of people getting baptized each year. Glory to God. Never gets old. So here's the question. Here's the important question about our public worship. Let me ask you this morning. Am I allowing God to work in my heart when I come to church? God wants to work in your life when you come to church. If, you, if, if your worship is less than fulfilling, less than complete, 
we can conclude rather quickly it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. I've heard people say, well, I, I just don't feel God's presence anymore. You know, I, I felt God's presence down in the old auditorium worship center. You know, worship is giving. Worship is you giving. If you're not giving your honor to God, it's not God's fault. It's not the church's fault. The problem is that some people, they don't worship with their whole heart. Some people, they're just mad at someone else. Uh, some people, they're, they're entangled in sin. You know, worship at our church, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. People from over 30 different countries come together every Sunday to exalt Jesus Christ. In spite of our spots and our blemishes, our church, God's New Testament church, it's a place where we are, we are privileged together to worship him. In this place, people are saved. In this place, lives are changed. In this place, marriages have been healed. In this place, believers are growing in their faith. In this place, we bring our children up to know God's truth. Never lose the wonder of what God is doing in this place, in the lives of others. Well, what about you? Is he doing it in you? Is God working in your life? He wants to. You know, many years ago, <clears throat> my parents uh, took Matt, Jeremy, and me. I was single dad at the time. Uh, they took us on vacation down to, to Pigeon Forge in their RV. And so that was a new experience for uh, me to do with the boys. I, I remember well because it was the only time I went bungee jumping. I was single, didn't have a lot to live for, so I thought I'd go ahead and bungee jump. <laughs> so we went to Freedom Baptist Church, and the pastor was named Ed Parton. Pastor Ed Parton. Uh, and you wonder, what, you know, I wonder if he's related to Dolly Parton. And so we went out to lunch with him and actually talked to him, and he is. He is, he is Dolly Parton's cousin twice over, two different ways, right? Now we're in the South, okay? <laughs> Dolly Parton's cousin, uh, first cousin on one side, a second cousin on the other side. Well, they had a guest preacher that day. His name's Bob Creel. And Brother Bob Creel preached a message about when you leave church, you should leave different than when you come. Now, he had been a pastor, but he was no longer a pastor because he had a stroke at the age of 39. So he started the desert place haven of rest for weary pastors. We support that ministry. We've had several groups go down on construction trips to be able to, uh, uh, to help build the cabins for the pastors. That morning he read Ezekiel 46, 9. When the people of the land shall come before the Lord in the solemn feast, he that entereth in by way of the north gate to worship shall go out by way of the south gate. And he that entereth by way of the south gate shall go forth by way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in. Now his point was this, was, this was not just about crowd control. This was not just about pedestrian flow. Uh, he, said, he said, when you come to worship, God wants you to leave by a different way. He wants you to leave just a little different than when you came in. We should leave a little more spiritual, a little more loving, a little more forgiving. Don't leave the way you came in. But the unspoken motto of many churches today is, well, just come as you are, leave as you were. 
Come as you are, leave as you were. You know, when I was a little guy, we lived down in San Antonio, and I remember going to a store with my mom, and we came upon one of those, one of those revolving doors. And so it looked to me like it was going pretty fast, and she had gone through, and so it was my turn, and, and you know, just kind of like, it's like jumping a rope. You got you to jump at just the right time. And so, so uh, I'm just a little guy. It's going fast, and as it's rotating on its axis, and I jumped, I went in, I grabbed the bar, and I held on tight, and, and, and I, I walked, I walked, I walked, I walked, and I came out, and I came right back to where I started. You know, it does that, that uh, whoosh clunk, whoosh clunk, whoosh clunk. You jump in. Is your worship like a revolving door? Will that be you today? Oh, you came to church. I mean, you got up early and you set your alarm and you got all set and you came and, and you came to church, but then you, you leave the same way that you came in. Is your worship like a revolving door? God has a concern for Christians who get caught in the revolving door of worship. They come to church, but, but an hour later they leave, nothing's happened. I believe that when you, when you meet with God, when you meet with God's people, something is going to happen ever so slight, ever so great. My question to you, my question for myself is this. Do I want God to work in my heart when I come to church? Am I allowing God to work in my heart? Don't leave the same way you came. We've not worshiped God until we come to the place where I make up my mind, God, I'm going to let you work in my heart today. God, I'm going to let you change me today. Ever so slight, ever so great. Private worship, public worship, but we're all coming to a day where there's going to be heavenly worship. The 24 elders of Revelation 4 and 5, it's you, it's me, represents all Christians in heaven from the church age. You will enter God's presence through a door, the door of death or the door of the rapture. God gave the apostle John a vision of things to come. Now here is a picture of the rapture. Look with me, verse 1. I, John, look, behold, a door was opened in heaven, the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. So John, he enters God's presence in this vision. It's a prophecy of what's going to happen to every Christian, even those who have already died. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And that means that the body and the ashes of every saint who's passed away will be resurrected, reunited with their spirit, which is already in heaven. Because the Bible says to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So if you get to heaven through the door of death, the body is here, the spirit is there. But that moment of the rapture, the body is raised and glorified and reunited with the Spirit. But the rest who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, uh, we won't precede those which have died in Christ. But the Bible, the Bible says that we will be caught up, we will be gathered together, we will be raptured and transformed, and we will receive a glorified body and never die. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, 54. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Now here in Revelation 4.10, as we see this scene of heaven and the angels worshiping, we have the 24 elders uh, on the throne. Notice what happens in verse 9 and 10. And when these beasts, these, these cherubim, they give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever. What happens? Verse 10. The four and twenty elders, the church, we fall down before him that sat in the throne. We worship him that liveth forever and ever. We cast our crowns before the throne. We say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Verse 10, two, two key words here. Fall down, and the other phrase, worship. Fall down and worship. Now, the, the one sitting on the throne, he is worthy of worship because he created all things. And so our worship is focused on what God has done, who God is. What, he, what has he done? Well, he has created all things. What has he done? He has redeemed us to God by the blood of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. He has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth with him, Revelation 5.10. So our worship is, is what God has done, but our worship is focused also on who God is. Who is he? He is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible says in chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. We are a special group of created beings, not like the angels, not like the demons. We are made in the image of God. Male and female created he them, Genesis 1, 27. Do you know that you can trust your Bible? You, you, can, you can trust the science that follows the Bible because if science doesn't follow the Bible, then it's not true science. God created male and female. He is creator. He is also redeemer. He's redeemed people from every kindred, tongue, and tribe, and nation. He's also ruler of heaven and earth. So we worship God for who he is. We worship God for what he has done. And then about our service. What will we do in heaven? I want you to think about this. A lot of people have this idea that, oh, well, I, you know, heaven, that's so boring. It's like uh, you, you, you grow some wings, you sit in a cloud, you have a harp, you play the harp, and, and that's heaven? That's not heaven. That's not heaven at all. And so this is one scene of heaven, this worshipful scene at the throne of God uh, here at the uh, beginning of the tribulation time in heaven. But I want you to think about this. Our service, our worship, we will have responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. Remember the parable of the talents? If you're faithful now, you'll be faithful in the millennial kingdom. You have authority. I have authority over five cities, authority over ten cities. God is going to give us places of responsibility and authority to serve in the millennial kingdom. We will judge angels. Know ye not that ye shall judge the angels? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. That's kind of cool. Here, here right now, angels minister to us. Angels guard us. Angels engage in spiritual warfare to help protect us. But there's coming a day, the Bible says, that we shall judge the angels. You say, Pastor, tell me, what's that going to be like? I have no idea, nor does anybody else. But it's going to happen. 
God is going to put us in a place to judge angels. And there are gazillions of angels. Notice also, we will serve God in eternity. Now, this is beyond the millennial kingdom, Revelation 22, 3, and his servants shall serve him. There's places of duties and responsibilities will have a purpose in eternity future. We will continue to learn about God, Colossians 2, 3. God is so great and so incredible. The hidden treasures of the wisdom of God, it'll take all of eternity to learn more and more about God. And then we will interact with all the saints of the ages. Isn't that cool? I mean, all the saints, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the tribulational, the millennial saints. And we're going to have our identity we're going to have our memory, and, and we're going to talk to them, and we're going to hear their stories. But then they're going to look at us and say, what's your story? What did you do for God? Don't you want to do something? Don't you want to have a story to tell? We're going to be fellowshipping with the saints of all the ages. There you have it, private worship, public worship. You have heavenly worship. So I want to close with this thought about how to prepare your heart for worship. There's a great verse in Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let's just look at a couple things here. When we come to God, we need to come with sincerity. Come with sincerity, with a true heart. Did you come to God's house today with all of your heart? I'm all in. God, you have all of me today. Come with sincerity. But notice also, uh, we are to come with faith, full assurance of faith. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Did you come to God with a heart of faith? You do not have to get all of your questions answered this side of heaven. You will not get all of your questions answered this side of heaven. But we have a verse, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So, so the good things that are happening to you, the bad things that are happening to you, God's going to take them and use them for his glory. We come with faith. Joseph, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God took the bad and he meant it for good to save many people alive. Come to God with faith. Come to God with humility with humility, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. We come to God with an understanding that no one is worthy to come into his presence. Without Christ, I have no right to heaven. Without Christ, you have no right to heaven. And that creates in us a heart of humility. We don't deserve what God is giving us. When our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, we are cleansed, we are forgiven. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, all the way up to the time of Christ, they, were, they would sprinkle the blood to cover the sin. These Hebrew Christians knew exactly what he meant. The blood of Jesus Christ that was shed upon the cross is the final and complete sacrifice for our sin. We are forgiven. One more, come to God with purity. Our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this is not baptism. This is not the waters of baptism. Old Testament priests continually washed themselves for worship. They came to the temple. They had the labor. They, they washed themselves to be clean. It's a picture of confessing our sins. We all need to daily confess our sins to God. Have you noticed we have no confessional booth at Valley Forge Baptist? Do you know if we did? 
If we did, we'd have to sell tickets because it would be so busy, wouldn't it? Aren't you glad? First John 1, 9, we, you don't come to me. I don't come to you. We don't go to a priest. We don't go to a bishop, a, a pastor, a deacon. We go right to God. God, please cleanse me. Forgive me. Restore the fellowship. So you want to please God when you worship? Be sincere. Be filled with faith. Come humbly. Confess your sins. So, church family, if you want to have a life richer, fuller, deeper, and more satisfying, then you make worshiping God a priority of your life. You know, now that I'm in the fourth quarter of my life, now that I've spent four decades in ministry, I appeal to you with all of my heart, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, come to him today. Come today. If you are a Christian, but you have not fully surrendered your heart and life to Christ, today's the day. Today's the day. Take the hands off the steering wheel of your life and let Jesus Christ take over. Psalm 95, 6 and 7. We're going to sing it in a moment. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture. We are the sheep of His hand. You'll never regret living a life to honor, to worship Jesus Christ. May we pray. Father, thank you for our time to be together in your house, to worship you, to love you, to serve you. Thank you for this great salvation we have. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You say, Pastor, if I died today, I know I would go to heaven. Would you simply raise your hand as a testimony? You're not ashamed to be called a Christian all over this congregation. Hold it up high for a moment. God bless you. You may put your hand down. You say, Pastor, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven. I'm not sure. I've got some doubt. But today, the Spirit of God is tapping on my heart, and I want to say yes to God. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to be like that publican, that tax collector that left the place of worship justified, forgiven. You can have that peace today. You can have that assurance. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior today, right now, I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to lead you in that salvation prayer. Just hold your hand up for a moment, anyone at all. I want to be saved today. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. God bless you. You may put your hand down. Anyone else? I want to receive Jesus as my Savior today. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone else? Would you pray with me? You pray with me from your heart sincerely. God will hear the prayer of your heart. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. I receive Jesus Christ today. Christian, may I ask you, are you, are you coming to worship God privately, 
publicly at church with the desire for God, to meet with God, to let God have his way in your life, to change you, to make you more like Christ. Oh, may your worship be acceptable because you worship in spirit and in truth. God, I ask you to bless this invitation time. May each one of us come before you with all of our hearts to, to bow down, to give you the honor and glory. Do your holy name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 85, Mercy and Truth. This is a psalm of hope for, well, it's, a, it's hope for individuals, but it's also hope for the nation of Israel, which means it's hope for our nation too. We're told when the psalm was written in verse 1, we're told when, when God brought the Jewish people, the children of Israel, back into their land after 70 years of captivity. So where are they being brought back from? From Babylon. Uh, Babylon, they're being brought back into the land, which by that time now had become Medo-Persia. Now remember the period of the kings and the chronicles? The Jews were not faithful to God for many years. It had broken into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, ten nations, ten tribes, and the two in the south, the kingdom of Judah. They dishonored the Sabbath year. They neglected the Sabbath year for 490 years, but God was keeping count. So that was 70 Sabbath years. Every six years, they were to let the land rest for a year, and you multiply that out. 70 Sabbath years. And so God said, I'm going to make the land rest. You didn't do it. I'm going to make it happen. And he used pagan nations to be able to bring a spanking chastisement upon them. And that was the Babylonian people. And so the land had rest for 70 years. And that Babylonian captivity, that's when Daniel and the three Hebrew uh, children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken into the, the palace to help administrate over the thousands of Jewish people that were taken into captivity. Seventy years of bondage for the Jews. But then came the decree by King Cyrus, and they were allowed to return to their land, 538, 539 B.C., and many returned with Zerubbabel. Uh, many returned in a second wave. There was finally a third wave that was led by a man named Ezra. And so that's recorded for us uh, there in Ezra, Nehemiah. So that's the setting for the psalm, coming back into the land. Would you please stand with me? God taught them many things through this time of trial, time of difficulty, uh, time of, of punishment and chastisement. But he did not break his promises to them. And so we pick it up in Psalm 85. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. Cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us I thy salvation. Then drop down to verse 10. Mercy and truth 
are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. May we pray. Lord, tonight as we consider our relationship with you, as we consider your table, I pray that you'd bring to remembrance to our minds how great a forgiveness we have experienced the day we were saved, to know that all of our sins, past, present, and even future sins, the penalty has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that, that spirit and attitude of love and gratitude grow and multiply because of these moments together in your word, in your house, as we partake tonight of the juice and the bread. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's a psalm of hope. The psalmist says, even though God has been merciful in the past, God is angry with sin in the present. God knows knows how to perfectly love the sinner and hate the sin. Uh, We need to learn from that as well. God loves everyone. God hates sin. And he's able to separate that perfectly. And we need to be able to love people, even people that hate God, deny God. We need to love them and bring the gospel to them. The psalmist is looking beyond his current situation. He's looking to the future. God is going to bring believers into the future kingdom, and we call that the millennial kingdom. The Bible identifies that as 1,000 years long, according to Revelation chapter 20. And so the response is a, it's a prayer of repentance. We find that in verse 7. In verse 7, show us thy mercy, O Lord. Grant us thy salvation. Not just individual, but as a nation. Dear God, restore to us our salvation. Bring the kingdom to us. God's response in, in verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. God will speak to us when we turn to him. And that's the word for repentance. Repentance, it's a change of mind. It's, it's a change of direction. Uh, but he wants us to learn from our past sins so that we will avoid them again. And then we come to mercy in verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Uh, Mercy, the Hebrew word is hesed, steadfast love, God's loving kindness. Now, the closest equivalent that we would have of that word in the New Testament is a Greek word. It's called charis, charis. And what does that word mean? That's the word for grace. The grace of God. So where do we see grace and truth meet together? Mercy and truth meet together. And that answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus Christ embodied, full of grace, full of truth, again, for us to be able to follow in his footsteps. So mercy and truth ultimately met together when Jesus died on the cross. God gave the full weight of the punishment of our sin 
on Christ, that's the truth. But he gives us forgiveness, that's the mercy. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us. Can you think of a time when mercy and truth are met together? Well, I can, I can show it to you tonight. I can give you two visuals that God gives to us. And the first one is the cross. The cross. Why did the Son of God die on the cross? You can really summarize it this way. God is holy. We are sinners. God loves us. God is holy. We are sinners. God loves us. Powerful yet truthful statements. God's holiness reveals our sinfulness when we compare ourselves to his perfect standard. God's love brings us to the cross. Mercy, God's love. Truth, God's holiness. They meet together at the cross. Why the cross? Why did God's Son have to die? Why is the shedding of blood so important to us as Bible-believing Christians who follow the Creator God, the Savior God? Well, you say Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. All right, but, but think with me here. Let's, let's follow God's reasoning. Why did God set it up this way? What's his plan to be able to, to let his son, a member of the Trinity, to become a man, to die on a cross and shed his blood? Well, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve in innocence. He gave them one command. What was the command? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of all the other trees in the Garden of Eden, you may freely enjoy and so that was his one command. This is reserved for me. Do not eat it. Because the day that you eat of it, the day you eat, you shall surely what? You're going to die. You're going to die. And so, so Satan, Lucifer, in his fallen state, possibly jealous over God's special creation of mankind. Again, uh, mankind is made a little lower than the angels, made in the image of God. And so Eve is deceived, but Adam sins willfully. So the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So we understand tonight that, that, that the, the guilt is attributed to Adam because he did, it, he did it willfully. Eve's deceived, Adam sinned willfully. And we can point fingers and we can throw stones at Adam and Eve but I believe the truth is, if you were Adam and you were Eve, you would have made the same choice. You would have made the same choice. We'd be in the same condition that we are in today. And so now we have this problem. God keeps the promise of his caution and warning that if you eat this fruit, if you disobey the command, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, then you're going to die. Did Adam die that day? I got a mixed vote, right? Got a mixed vote. And you're both right. You're both right. Adam did die, 
spiritually. Adam began to die physically. Now, it took about 930 years because, again, before the flood, people lived long periods of time. Methuselah lived uh, actually even longer, what, 969. Uh, but Adam lived 930 years, and then he, he died physically. But what you have is God said, the day you eat, you shall surely die. He died spiritually. And we are born spiritually dead. We are body, soul, and spirit. Uh, body is our world consciousness, and our soul is, is, is our self-consciousness, and our spirit is our God consciousness, and that's, that is dead. So what happened is God provided a way of salvation. That way of salvation was to be saved by faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ. And so the, uh, the type, the, the image that God gave to them and then through the sacrificial system was that, that animals would be the substitute to die in the place for a covering of sin. And so God, God provided a covering of clothing. And that covering of clothing, probably sheep, a lamb, probably a covering from, from, from the neck to the knees, Blood was shed. And then what happened is Adam and Eve chose to believe. And like with Abraham, because they believed, it was imputed unto them for righteousness, and God saved them. They became believers. They became Old Testament saints. And so what you have is, by one man sin entered into the world, death by sin, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's how we are born. We're born with the sin nature. We're born spiritually dead to God. We're safe until we come to that age of accountability. Follow God's logic. Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. All have sinned, Romans 3, 23. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, you die. You sin, you die. Well, that's all of us, right? Except for Jesus Christ. Jesus never sinned. He never sinned one time. He was tempted, but he never sinned. So if you sin, you die. He never sinned. He should never have to what? He shouldn't have to die. So he dies in our place. He dies as our substitute. Hold your finger here. Let's turn just back to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and I want you to see the ultimate wages of sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's referring to a physical death and a spiritual death. The physical death is testified by every cemetery in the world. The spiritual death is outlined for us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. First death, physical. Second death, spiritual. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is what we are saved from. We are saved to a restored relationship with God. We are, we are brought back into fellowship with God by the second Adam. As in the first Adam all die... In the second Adam, we are made alive. It's pretty fascinating that the Garden of Eden, described in Genesis 1 and 2, 
looks very much like the new heaven and the new earth described in, what, Revelation 21 and 22. There's a river of life. There's the tree of life. Uh, There's the, the fruit that bears fruit every month. What you have is paradise lost. Now you have paradise restored. We're still under a world that's under the curse of sin, but folks, this is not all there is. Jesus Christ is going to redeem not just, not just believers, but all of creation is going to be restored and renewed. So there's your first illustration of mercy and truth meeting together at the cross. Let me show you the second illustration now. It's the Lord's Supper. It's juice and it's bread. Unleavened bread and juice without fermentation, non-alcoholic grape juice. Wine is a corruption of the illustration that Jesus gave us. The fruit of the vine. The blood and body of Christ is a reminder of God's love and holiness and the sacrifice of Christ for you and for me. God says, never forget God says, never get over it. God says, always remember what I have done for you. As you have been forgiven, so you are to forgive others. There is no place for resentment and grudge holding in the heart and life of a Christian. When you hold on to an offense, you break your fellowship with God, you forfeit his blessings. He wants to give you his peace. He wants to give you his abiding joy. He wants to give you his power. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I want God's peace. I want God's power. I want God's abiding joy. And that's reason enough to let go of offenses. Whether someone has offended you in a minor way, whether someone has offended you in a major way, the answer is to forgive. How many times? Jesus said 70 times Seven, 490 times. And that's not a limit. That's just a way of saying forgive again and again and again. So back to verse 10. Psalm 85, 10. Mercy and truth are met together. That's on the cross. And we're going to remember that tonight with bread and juice. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness is right living. Peace, that's the word for shalom. Shalom. And they go together. So when God's people are right with God, God's people will love one another. They will always do right towards one another. They will seek forgiveness for their wrongs. They will turn from their sin. When you do right before God, you're going to do right before others. What happens? Shalom. Peace. Peace with God. Peace with uh, one another peace among God's people. And then verse 11, truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Is this not what we want? God's truth, God's truth, righteousness, doing right, looking down from heaven on us. God is going to bring a righteous kingdom to this earth and we're to be loving and serving and forgiving to be approved by God. There's coming a day of accounting And so the time to keep short accounts with God is now. Brother Wilson, you share with me this morning, you said 
the end of the day, your mother said to you, what about the clean slate? When you get to the end of each day, his mom taught him, you got to keep your slate clean at the end of each day. So how do you do that? How do you do that? First John 1, 9. God, God, thank you for this day. You, you gave it to me in the morning. Now I give it back to you. The blessings I am grateful for, the failures, the sins, I ask for your cleansing, for your forgiveness. And so we start with that. Uh, David said, I have sinned against you in Psalm 51. But once we make it right with God, then we make it right with others. You say, how do you do that? Well, love covers a multitude of sins, right? Uh, but if it's something that is, is, is in your heart and conscience as the offender or the offended, you go and you make it right. Isn't that the way you want to live? With the slate clean. So when Peter, when Peter said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, uh, the, the Lord says, well, then you have nothing to do with me. The Lord said, no. He said, give me a bath. He said, no, you don't need a bath, Peter. You just need to, 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 to wash your feet. The symbolism is this. When you're saved, all of your sins are forgiven. You don't have to get saved again and again and again and again. But you do walk through the world and your feet get dirty. And you need to ask for fresh cleansing. So tonight, in just a moment, our men are going to come. And I'm going to give to them the elements of bread and juice and they're going to be able to to come through and pass them to you we're going to ask you to to hold uh, the bread until they return and i serve them and we'll pray together and we'll partake of the bread together and then we'll do it again with the juice but during this time of passing out the bread and the juice it's time for you to talk to god it's time for you to let God talk to you. And in your heart, in your conscience, if there's something there that you need to confess to God, we start there. We start there and ask him for a fresh cleansing, forgiveness. The men will return a third time to be able to collect the cups. Now, we follow the example of Acts chapter 2, verse 41, 42. The Bible says they received the word. They were baptized. They were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in four things. One of those things was the Lord's table. And so what we do tonight, we're following in good example of our first century brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Before the men come, I'd like us to take a time of prayer and ask, you can ask God to begin to search your heart. The Bible says if we judge ourselves, we should not be judged. We do not come to the Lord's table flippantly. We come understanding this great meaning. The more you understand what we are saved from, the lake of fire, eternal hell, the more grateful you become for this wonderful salvation. Is that right? So let's pray together and ask God to bless our partaking of the Lord's table tonight. Father, we, we come into your presence thanking you for all that you've done for us. We praise you. We praise you that mercy and truth are met together. We could never be saved. We could never enter heaven without 
your grace and mercy and love and wonderful forgiveness. So, Father, I pray tonight as we have this time to take the bread and the juice that we would have hearts overflowing with gratitude that we're saved. We've been restored into a relationship with our living God, our loving Heavenly Father, all because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So, Father, I pray tonight that you will bless this time. May it be a time of fresh cleansing, fresh anointing, that in this place our hearts will be clean and filled with your joy, your love, your peace. And may, like the psalmist, we be filled with hope to know that one day you will return and we will spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.